Okay, so this uh, photograph that we're going to study today, the first one at least, is of Rav Shlem Zalman Auerbach in, in Shir. Rav Shlem Zalman Auerbach is known as being the Pesach Hadar. He was like the, you know, the address of many people when they had intricate halachic shaylas. But more than that, he was the Rosh Hashiva of Kol Tairo, which is the yeshiva that I happen to have gone to personally in Israel. Okay, great question. So he lived from 1910 to 1995, uh, and he was Rashiva for about, I would say, the last 40 years of his life, so maybe, uh, um, you know, from the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, till was, you know, a couple of years before he died. Same years as Ramesh also? So Ramesh was maybe uh, 10 years older than him. Um, but they did overlap, so he was definitely a contemporary of Ramesha. I think he considered himself a Talmud of Ramesha uh, in many ways, even though they never he never studied under him. But just from studying his chuvas, you know, his svarim, he he deferred always to Ramesha Feinstein. But he, at the same time, was his own man. He was he issued his own piske halacha. Was he the first um, like globally accepted uh, posek like posek that are following uh, World War II? Rupshlam Zalman? Yeah. No, I, I think Ramesha probably maybe would be. Um, have to think about it, but uh, I would say Ramesha was probably the... Uh, then there were others. You know, the, the Hasidish world had their own Paiskim. Of course, the Sfardish world had their own Paiskim, but in, in the Lithuanian yeshiva world and the Ashkenazic, you know, regular Ashkenazic jury, uh, non-Hasidish uh, Ramesha, I would say, in America, and... And really, he had a, you know, in Russia, they were very much, uh, they, they were very much followed his Pisgah Halacha. Um, and Eretz Yisrael also, but in Eretz Yisrael, they had other Paiskim, you know, Rav Shlomo Zaman, Rav Yashiv, uh, you know, earlier Rav Pesach Frank, and uh, the Chazanish, uh, you know, other, there were, Baruch Hashem, there were G'dayle Yisrael, you know, many, many Paiskim, uh, after World War II, who were able to pass in the very difficult questions that would arise, especially in the w- aftermath of World War II. Somebody had to answer the questions about all these women, uh, whether they were Aguna, you know, they didn't, whether they, their husbands uh, died or they didn't die. I mean, you know, so many thousands, tens of, hundreds of thousands of women maybe, you know, were left not knowing if their husbands were uh, were alive anymore. If they were alive, they weren't able to remarry, and if they were not alive, they would. But how do you how do you determine if you know? So you need to be a real big paisik. And Ramesha took on a lot of these cases, as did other great paiskim. And uh, Ramesha said that all of the years that he paskined, all the thousands of women that he paskined, not one of them he was wrong about. You know, you think, okay, it's. You know, you're talking about many, many thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of, you know, men. And there were survivors. People did end up surviving somehow. But he had a special siat deshmaya, like a divine uh, blessing of never being wrong in halacha, at least as far as this is concerned, and probably broadly as well. I guess I'm curious because, um, you know, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated in how certain people become settled as 
as like an accepted as oh they're gonna go with like excluding you know like um like uh, when it's just like the sun of you know like the sun right. sofa, the sun of the sun sofa. and I guess I'm I'm even more curious because you know in today's generation unfortunately with the fear of the author earlier this year like how do we determine who is like the penultimate authority on Torah matters now. Right, that's a, a great question. There, there's a very interesting article in the New York Times, of all places. They interviewed Ramesha. I don't know what year the article is, but you should definitely try to find it. I'm sure it's uh, readily accessible online. Um, you know, they had, it was like an entire article with pictures of him in it, and they were, they were, he was, he lived in New York, so the New York Times was naturally, I guess, you know, wanting to cover him. And in the article, they basically asked this question of him, like, how do you become the accepted, you know, Pisic? How do you, how does that, there's no election system, there's no, uh, so he was very humble, Ramesha, and he said, I'm not sure, he says, what happened was somebody asked me a question, I answered it, apparently they liked the answer that I gave, and then another person knocked on my door, and then another person asked him before you knew it. I had many, many people asking me questions, and that's, you know, that's how G'daylem very often, you know, come, They're, they just, Klal Yisrael has a, an inherent um, a sense, like a sixth sense almost, to determine who their leaders are. And uh, you're right, there are times that the sons of Tamil Chamim happen to also become the next generation. And, but you should know that it's not, it wasn't just a, an inherited mantle that was passed down, and that's why, like the Ksav Seifer, which was your example, he wasn't the God Ladar because his father happened to be the Chazm Seifer. If his father was, you know, was uh, a lawyer, he would have been the God Ladar also. His fa- it, it, it gave him some name recognition. It probably gave him Shemush by his father. He was able to learn a lot by being around his father, but... He wasn't given, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that he was given a free pass just because he was, you know, like it's, and it's, it's tempting to, to say, well, let's look, let's look at the matches out there. Like you have Shmuel Kamenetsky, the son of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rabbi David Feinstein was the son of Ramesha Feinstein. And, uh, you know, and, and others were, you know, but that's, it just, you know, if you read the, the, let's say, just over, when was that? When was the last break that we had? I guess intercession. I read the biography of Rabbi David Feinstein. Arts Girl just came out with a, a, a biography, like a thick biography, called Rabbi David. And I normally don't have patience to read so much. I don't read like a whole like I maybe I jump you know around. It was like I was able to read it you know pretty much from cover to cover. It was a fascinating read, and I, I never really knew so much about Rabbi David. I, was, I have a friend, a very close friend, who learned by him for 30 years, and he was one of his closest Lamida, but I always like assumed sort of like what you were saying, I don't know, his father was Ramesh Feinstein, he became Rosh Shiva, so... But if you understand, like, he was brilliant, and he knew Kalatar Kula clearly. He, had, he was a tzaddik, he was an anav, he was, he, he was so simple... He would fill the soda machines in the yeshiva in, in MTJ. You know, he didn't see that as being beneath him. Like, you know, normally a Rosh would never even go near a soda machine. Sure, I, I, I never meant to imply that, like... Uh, no, 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 I know that you didn't. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, but there is... What? It is passed down. It is passed down. And the rabbinic, you know, in, in, by Rosh Hashivas very often, it's also passed down. And there are halachas about that. You're allowed to pass, like a rub very often, 
uh, is allowed, or a shiva could give over, assuming that the child is, wor- is worthy. Uh, it does go very often birusha. That's just the way it works. But yeah. I mean, in the, I was just interrupting. Uh, but in like I read in the kids, the, 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 sorry, because so you know the reason I popped into my head is when I was taking a, a Jewish history with uh, Rabbi Miller, mm-hmm. which amazing course by the way. Yeah. Um, and like you went through the when we were talking about you know the Sofer's fight with uh, the reform movement. And it said, you know, when he was going over, giving over, you know, the Rishda Ksavsofer, like he very much, like he said, like he was addressing the community on his, uh, you know, deathbed, and he was saying, like, I, I reeled his mind, and I absolutely determined that, yes, he is fit to lead you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he was very proud of the Ksavsofer. Uh, when he was getting old and, and infirm, he already gave over his yeshiva, like the top shear was given by the Ksavsofer and the Talmidim famously came in and reported to me after his first shear, you know, came to the, the Chassam Sefer and said, you know, your son's remarkable. Like, the shear was fabulous. It was out of this world. Like, it's amazing. You should get a lot of nachos from him. He says, like, do you think that happened from nothing? He says, I think he, he took off his yarmulke, maybe. He says, I shed, you know, tear, cups and cups of tears so that my son should be a tamachacham like that. And he, you know, and he, he learned so hard and he learned so well, but I, I shed tears and I gave over everything that I could to him. It wasn't just an, an accident. Like if Rabbi David Feinstein developed into Rabbi David Feinstein, you know, a lot of it is his own. Ramesha didn't give him a computer chip to, to know Shas. He had to do that on his own. But it didn't hurt, I guess, that your father was Ramesha Feinstein. You saw you know, a, a semel, like a, an icon of greatness in Tyra and, and humility and everything. And I guess that gets passed down, you know, maybe genetically or maybe by osmosis or whatever. So there is a connection, but it's not just like, okay, you know, he was great, you know, he was great independently of of Ramesha and the, and the Ksav Seifer, of the Chasim Seifer. And Chasidish Rebus also, you know, is, is very similar to like, you, you know, you mentioned that it goes Birusha, Chasidus you know, it does go Birusha, but, you know, it, it's just amazing how Hashem allows that more often than not, the, the sons and the, the inheritors are really, really great people in, in and of themselves. You know, you have the Chidusha Rim and then the Svas Emes and the, you know, all the Gerebis are huge, and great leaders. And um, the same is true with, uh, you know, with, with, the whole Lubavitch legacy from the Balatanya, you know, to the you know, to and all the great people on that line, the Tzemach Tzedek and the and and the, the Rashab and the you know the the Rayats and there's great leaders generation after generation and you know that's the way it's uh, it's been and Hashem allows that to happen because He wants Klal Yisrael to have great leaders. This is a difficult question, but what does one do when? It doesn't happen that you know the, the the son is like on the level or is really you know competent enough to. I'm I'm, I'm sure that must have happened. Something's greatest student. Huh? I'm sorry. Greatest student was like with um, of its time when like kind of terrible time. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes I mean that didn't happen with the Chavetz Chaim. Um, you know, didn't give over his, you know, his his position. Mm-hmm. Meaning he gave over maybe. As God, the, the mantle of being Gadladar maybe gave it to Rebuchanan, but in terms of his yeshiva and in terms of, you know, whatever, he, you know, a lot of that was passed down either to his sons or, or to, uh, he, he hired Rashivas, like the Granat, Rabbi Naftali Trapp was the Rashiva of his yeshiva in Radin. 
Um, but that's a good question. I mean, very often, it, it doesn't mean that every son is as great as a father. You know, that that would be very hard to, to pull off. But very often, let's put it this way, if there are multiple sons, it should, and it generally does, go to the most competent of the sons. They're not going to give the son that's the oldest, you know, or they shouldn't be giving him the, the rights to it, you know, just because he happens to be the oldest very often. The father, if he's, you know, it's a difficult thing to do, right? It's difficult if you're the father to pass over your bachar and to pass over sometimes multiple children to get to the right one. It happens very often that it does happen and it creates a lot of, you know, right now, the most recent case that comes to mind is the um, uh, the Sadiger Rebbe. Sadiger Rebbe, we've spoken about Sadiger, it's one of the offshoots of of, uh, of the original dynasty that, remember the golden boots in the snow. So his son, one of his sons is a Sadiger Rebbe and, and there's a long line of Sadiger Rebbe since then and the most recent one that was Nifter, he was a man, a young, he was like, a, I'd say he was Nifter, maybe he was in, in his early 70s possibly, very regal man. I, I, I saw him in person at one of the Agoda conventions a few years ago. Uh, he looked like real royalty, like as you'd expect, you know, somebody from that line to, to be very regal. Um, and then he died. He was very, he got he had cancer, and within a year or two, he was no longer. And he had many children. He had many sons. And he gave over the whole Hasidus, the whole Rebbe, you know, the, to be the Rebbe, to I think his youngest son, who was like, you know, maybe 21 years old. Young, he looks young. He looks like he's somebody like your age around. And it's a pretty decent sized Hasidus. And there were other sons that were passed over. And, but that was the Rebbe's decision. The Rebbe felt that of all his sons, for what, whatever reason, this son should be the, should be the one that, that continues the legacy. And it's, you know, and I think all of them, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, you know, really accepted it. I don't think anyone, like, started their own offshoot chassidus, which sometimes happens also. But it happens, you know, and as part of the role of a Rebbe, you have to make sure that the child that succeeds you is the most worthy of all the children, that's able, you know, both intellectually and spiritually and uh, morally, uh, and it's it's challenging. You know, it must be very challenging to to do that, as it's challenging for Rosh Shiva to give over his, you know, his position, his seat to uh, whichever son is. The Chasim Seifer had more than one son. The Chasim Seifer had uh, another son who was also brilliant. I don't know who was older, but his name was Rav Shimon Seifer, and he was the Rav of Krakow probably one of the most prominent rabbinical positions of the time, uh, big community, and he, so, you know, you, sometimes you have to choose who succeeds you, and that's, uh, and you give it over to the one that you feel is best suited for that. Krakow was the capital of Jewish Jewry in Eastern Europe, right? It was one of them, Vilna, Krakow, there were a few capitals, but uh, Krakow is major, and the Ramah was from Krakow, and, you know, that many, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, yeah. a lot of history. Prague yeah, was... I've always wanted to go to a Sorry for interrupting this, but you know, I've always wanted to go to that um, the the cemetery of um, you know, Rashuk, there's like yeah. four or five massive idolas. He was buried there, right? Ramah. Ramah's buried there. Ramah's there's a family plot there of his yeah. wife, his father, I think, his father-in-law, and some some children. Lugos is buried there. Right. I think the Tosos Yantif, is, I think, is buried there. 
And then, of course, the famous uh, Yasla the Miser, you know, made famous. So my my grandfather, who was a Holocaust survivor, he owned a restaurant. His house was around the corner from there, mm-hmm. and he would, you know, and, and he, he would just open it. It was it was just amazing to yeah. me. And, and there are Mashul about the cemetery, right. you know, the famous shul. And it's I think they use the kvar on the parts of the Nazis as paved stones. Yeah, and they did that a lot. Um, he started even back with the Bashan to his he started to take over the the cities and where the market was rich. Right, correct. So he was back then, mm-hmm. the Rav Nachman Breslov was a I think he was a grandson or great grandson of the yeah, Bashan. So right, the Naga took over for him. That's true. Uh, did he have he had sons the Bashan to? Bashan had a son, and he, son. For the first year after the Bashan to he was a son, and then he, one day when they were also at the table, yeah, he said I just had. My father said that I should have traveled to you for the Mother Message. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mother Message. Uh-huh. Is this, I think I have a picture of Rambo's. Is this his cover? Yeah, that's. Um, yeah. yeah, this is definitely. Yeah, this is his cover. Someone next to him. Was the Rebbe there? And that, no, he was never here. And then next to him is a Rishal. I think that was his father. And then, but there's, within this gated area is like a lot, his wife and his, <coughs> that's his family plot. But then beyond that is, like you said, all these great gedalim. Um, a lot of the graves, some of the graves I think were, were destroyed during, right, like you said. And then they had to re, they set a lot of them up again. Um, and it's, a, it's a tiny shul. Yeah, it's very, very small. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the story. You know, there's a cute, you just remember, reminded me, there's a story about, like, like a Rebbe died, and then another, so one of his sons, they had to decide which son to give it to. The father didn't leave it over in a, in a you know, in a, in a shtar, in a will, in a tzava. So, he's, so one son said, I had a dream last night that my father came to me and he said that I should be the Rebbe. So, you know, so he went to one of the big rabbis, you know, there was, it was met with cynicism, like, you know, I don't know, like, is that true, is it not true, like, anyone could say that. So, like, the big rabbi who they went to, to consult, he says, he says, that's not a right, he says, if your father really would have wanted you to be the rabbi, he would have gone to your brothers and told them in a dream that they want you, he wants you to be a rabbi. By, get, by coming to you as a rabbi, that's not a, doesn't mean anything, it's not really a valid, uh, so, Sir Shlaim Zalman um, was uh, the, one of the Paiske Adar. He wrote a, a Chuba Sefer, a set of Chuba Sarim called Mincha Shlaima. Um, and he was, and that's what I guess the world at large knew him as primarily because he was the address that people would send a lot of Shilas to and he would answer them. On all topics, I think he was the Paisik of Sharitzadik Hospital. So he was he was an expert in electricity and in halacha, which is which was a you know today electricity is ubiquitous. But when he was starting out as a young man in his early twenties, they had just like electricity was just getting started. Right, electricity was really just beginning to take over the world, and they didn't know exactly what it was and you know what it, how do you define it in, in halacha halachic terms? Is it is it fire? Like if I turn off a switch on Shabbos, so you know, is that is that is that like extinguishing a fire? 
is it breaking a circuit? Like, what's exactly the problem of, uh, you know, is it making a circuit and breaking a circuit? Is it turning out fire? It wasn't clear. Shlomo Zalman did a lot of research and really understood electricity very well. He really did research earlier, not just for the electricity of the common... I think they say that his mother um, was hard of hearing, Shlomo Zalman's mother, and she had hearing aids, and she asked her son like if she could he- keep her hearing aids in for Tekiah Shafer, you know, can you hear the Shafer with the hearing aid, or Yaitze? Uh, for davening, am I, you know, Yaitze. Other thing, Megillah, Kriya Satira, and so it forced him to really try to grapple with the nuts and bolts of electricity and how it works and how it affects halacha. So he became really uh, the go-to Paisik for electricity of his time. Um, and he, uh, and people acknowledge that. He put out a safer in his youth called, in, again, he was, I think, 21, 22, called Ma'are Eish, and um, all about electricity and halacha. And he sent a, a copy, I think before it was published, he sent a copy to Reb Chaim Eiser, the chief rabbi of Vilna. Reb Chaim Eiser Grzynski was the Gadol Adar, and he was the Paisagadar, and he sent him, and Reb Chaim Eiser sent back a magnificent approbation, a haskama approval of the Sefer, and he writes in it, Ar Chadash al entire, that there is a new light that's shining on Zion, meaning in Eretz Israel. He was in Europe, Reb Chaim Eiser. But from Yerushalayim, there's a new light that's shining, and that's from Shalim Zalman Arabach. So he was very famous from his youth, already from his 20s, as being a Paisik, and, but, but Personally, what what he felt was his primary mission in life was being a Rosh Hashiva. And in fact, when he died, before he died, he insisted that on his gravestone would be very few words. He, you know, he did not want a lot of praises. Like a lot of people have, like a whole, you know, whole epitaph full of, you know, in, in fine print saying a million things about them themselves. He wrote his own epitaph, and he basically said. Uh, you know, here is buried Shlomo Zalman Arabach, Rav Shlomo Zalman Arabach, Ben, his father's name. And then it says that he, I think it says something like, Hamid Talmidim Harbei, Yeshivas Kaltaira, that he established many Talmidim in Yeshivas Kaltaira. That's it. No word about his halachic, you know, brilliance and, and, and nothing about, you know, how famous he was and about how he. He really, you know, was the, one of the leading Torah personalities for 40 years, 50 years, and just he just wanted it to be known that he was Rashiva in Kol Torah. And just interesting, that's so late, but he was, um, he, um, so he used to, I, when I was there, I was Zaychet to be in his shir. It was the last years that he was giving shir. It was, I think, I was maybe the, the second to last year. And I always say this, but it was I didn't really learn too much in a shear because and that because I did come every day to shear and but he would take off his glasses in shear. Like he had you know, he had glasses and then when he would sit down for some reason he took them off. And when he took them off, like he, he his face just glowed. I guess with glasses it also glowed, but it you know, it was like a little bit of an obstruction on his face. But like when he took them off, he looked literally like a Malach Hashem Tzavakis. Like you couldn't take your eyes off of him. He was like, he was glowing. He was an angel. 
and he was a prince of a man. He was always smiling. He was always happy. He was always kind and and you know brilliant, elegant, just full of you know just. He just perfectly embodied what a Tamil Chacham, what a Rosh Hashiva, what a Paisik should be used. Just, and, you know, he, uh, there's a beautiful picture that I found. This was actually right, this man right before I came into the Shir, because I know a lot of these guys were my friends. Um, I'm going to pass, pass it around, but I want to just quickly tell you a story before I do. Um, so my friend before me had a certain job. A lot of us had jobs in the yeshiva. I told this already? I'm sorry. So a, a lot of us had, had positions, not a lot, a few people had like jobs that you, that you did in shir. So like, for example, when Rosh Hashanah came uh, into shir, there was a recording of the shir, and somebody had the job, like Rosh Hashanah would like lift his beard and somebody would clip the microphone onto his lapel. You know, just like they have today, these microphones that go on the lapel. They had it back then also. Maybe they were older and clunkier, but they... And that, was some, that was one guy's job. I had a job that after Shir was over, Shlomizam would give me his, his, um, his notebook, like a machberet, and his keys, his keys to, to his office and to his house. And basically, I would run from one side of the building to the other side of the building. It was like, the building was like a ches, and his office was on the other side. I would get his hat, you know, go into his office, put down his notebook, get his hat, his, his beaver hat, and, um, you know, like the Yerushalmi men wear, like a round hat, and then I would run back to the other side of the building and give him his hat and his keys, and he would go straight to Mincha, so he didn't have to make a detour to the office. That was my job. So what happened was that my friend who I inherited this job from, he had the same job, and one day he came to Rosh Hashanah after Shir to get the keys from, you know, so Rosh Hashanah was like fishing in his pocket to look for the keys. It wasn't in this pocket, and then he went into this pocket, it wasn't in that pocket. And he was starting to get a little nervous. It was his office, he was his house, you know what it's like to lose your keys. So my friend said, you know, in Hebrew, like maybe the Rosh Hashanah forgot you know, forgot his keys in, his, in the office. Possible, you know, he came into the office. He put it, so he says, all right. He says, so he ran to the other side of the building quickly. And he looked. It wasn't on the desk, and it wasn't on his couch, and it wasn't in the bathroom, and it wasn't on the floor. He says, I don't know where it could be. You know, so and then he saw that Rav Zaman's coat was hanging on, on like a hook. There was like hooks on the side of the, on the wall in the office. And he thought maybe he left it in, in his pocket, in his coat pocket. So he put his hand in the coat pocket, and sure enough, there were the keys. My friend was so happy. You know, he found the Rashiva's keys. He's going to be so happy with me. Anyway, he goes and he runs and you know, he slides on the marble, like right before Rashiva Zalman. And, um, you know, and he says, Rashiva, Matsati Atamaftechot, I found the keys. And Rashiva Zalman was always smiling, but his smile got bigger. And he said, Ah, oh, where were they? He says, Were they on the desk? He says, no. He says, were they on the floor? No. Were they on the couch? No. He says, so where were they? Where, you know, where'd you find them? So my friend said, well, I, you know, I, it was in the Rashiva's coat pocket. So suddenly, Rashiva's almond's face turned, like, white, and, like, you know, very, and his smile, like, disappeared. And he got very, very agitated, and he said, tell me again, what did you do? He says, yeah, the keys were in the Rashiva's coat pocket, and I... 
He says, so what? You took your hand and you put it into my coat pocket? He says, yeah, and, and there were the keys. He says, no, 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 you're not understanding something, or I'm not understanding something. How did you take your hand and go into my coat pocket? I didn't give you permission to go into my private property. And he says, maybe you took my wallet also once you were... Th- Rishon was the nicest man in the world. You shouldn't walk out of this room thinking, oh my gosh, that's very harsh. She was giving chinuch. He was saying, you know, halacha and, 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 and ethically, we, you know, you're not supposed to go into other people's property. It's not appropriate. You don't, this is, and it's, it has such far-reaching consequences, so, so many, you know, far-reaching uh, matters that it pertains to. Like, you know, if let's say, you know, to go into your friend's cubby, to go into your friend's locker, to go into your friend's desk, to go into your friend's uh, knapsack, uh, you know, or your mother's pocketbook. You know, mother's pocketbook is home. You want to, you know, you need $20, so you just go. First, you know, you have to ask permission, but you can't go into anyone's permit. You can't. You're invited somewhere for Shabbos, and you go through the person's closets, medicine cabinets, dresser drawers, like... You're not, you have no rishus to go into somebody else's thing. You can't put your hand into my pocket. You know, whether I'm in my pocket, whether I'm wearing my pants, you're not, you're not supposed to like, and Rav Shemizam was trying to drill that into his Talmud. And my friend said if he would have a shovel and the floor wasn't marble, he would have dug his own grave. He felt so bad. But, and many times I would say, I say over the story and I record it and people say, I don't think you should say that. It's not nice to, and I don't agree. I think it's a beautiful story of, of, of a Rebbe giving his Talmud chinuch. He wasn't trying to embarrass him. He wasn't trying to scold him. He was trying to like convey to him a lesson for life that you know you, you don't go into somebody else's life. You don't go in. And now in the age of technology, you know, like it's, you know, you don't hack into other people's account or if you see somebody, um, you know, whose computer is unlocked or whatever, you don't go into his laptop and, and see, you know, you could see which sites he was on or check out his email or check out his, uh, his WhatsApp, his text. So it's none of your business. It's also, you're not allowed to do that. You're just not, you know, today. It, hacking is like, if I could hack, I could, I'm allowed to look. As long, if I'm good enough as a hacker, I'm, I'm allowed to go into anywhere I want. Right? That's, I, think, I think that might be modern, uh, you know, that, 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 that's the perception of things. That's obviously, it's us. A Jew does, un, understands that, just like there's theft, you know, there's theft in, in monetary sense. I can't steal your money. I, there's intellectual theft. I can't steal your intellectual rights and your property and your, and, and your privacy is, is also yours uh, to have. And there's many halachas about Ezekria. You're not allowed to look into somebody else's, through somebody else's window, through some, in somebody else's backyard. It, you, it's, you know, you, if you have an apartment in Manhattan or whatever, you, and you have, you have 20 apartments that face you, you have to be very careful about looking into other people's apartments and looking into other, you just, there are things that you're not, just because it's, it's within your eyesight doesn't mean that it's within your wishes to, to do it. So that, oh, I didn't show you the paper. All right, we'll stop here.